0: Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode nine is about Abraham Zapruder and the Zapruder film. There's too much about this film to talk about in one episode, so we'll take several episodes to go through it. The Zapruder film is not the only piece of cinematic or photographic evidence taken that day that was significant. We'll talk in later episodes about the others. As I have said in prior episodes, there was no eyewitnesses that saw anybody pull the trigger that day in Dallas. As a result, this case evolved very quickly into an analysis of the forensics and circumstances. The Zapruder film and its cinematic and photographic evidence becomes central to tying together much of the other ballistics information. I say both cinematic and photographic evidence because movies are a collection of single photographic frames shown so quickly that the eye is fooled into seeing a continuous flow of motion between them. Those single frames become an important part of the analysis, as you will start to see in this series on the film. But what would this case be if it weren't full of complications in that respect? And that's the case even with the Zapruder film. Keep in mind what we talked about in Episode 7 and the evaluation of evidence and circumstances as you begin to hear all those complications in this multi-part series on the Zapruder film we'll start to tie in some of the things that you've learned about related to the rifle and the shots taken from the depository, and even more than that. As I said in a previous episode, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then this movie is priceless to the assassination analysis. But like so much else that is mysterious in this account, there are a few missing pieces of the puzzle that complicate things, as I've just said. Can't wait to tell you about them. I'm tempted to publish Episode 10, Part 2 of the Zapruder series before the weekend is out if I get enough feedback from all of you. In Episode 10, we will start to get into more meteor subjects related to the forensics. If you want me to publish it this weekend, email me at podcastjfk.com. Today is the first part of the story, and it's definitely a storytell. Hopefully, you will enjoy So here we go. Without further ado, here is Episode 9, the Zapruder Film, Part 1. At the time of the assassination, Abraham Zapruder was a 58-year-old businessman living in Dallas. Little did he know that later that morning on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, he himself would capture on film one of the most important and horrific moments in the history of the 20th century. Even more importantly, it would be the only cinematic account of what actually happened that day in Dealey Plaza right at the moment the shots were fired at President Kennedy. Again, if a picture is worth a thousand words the Zapruder film, and all it told, became priceless. Zapruder himself was neatly dressed that day in a suit, his usual attire. He had been born in 1905 in Russia before his family immigrated here to the United States. Those years were difficult and challenging for his family, and they were recalled with great pain in later years by Zapruder. Abraham Zapruder was an affable man with a slight accent that punctuated his proud personal history and his personal journey to America. He understood and had an appreciation for the freedom and the opportunity that America afforded Zapruder and others like him of the chance to make a better life abraham zapruder was a co-owner of jennifer jr's inc and in 1963 he had a younger partner erwin schwartz who was the heir of his deceased partner abraham and erwin divided the duties up of running the company with zapruder in charge of the factory and schwartz in charge of sales they made ladies dresses that morning zapruder came to his office which was on the fourth floor of the Dow Tech's building, right there adjoining Dealey Plaza. He was excited about the president's visit that day, knowing there was a possibility he might even catch a glimpse of him as the company's offices were next to the parade route. And then it dawned on him. He realized that he had forgotten his movie camera. It was still at home. When some of the employees realized that Abraham didn't have his camera with him, they urged him to go back home and get it. At first, Zapruder resisted, thinking that there was a slim chance he would get an opportunity to actually see the president and take good film footage. He even said that to Lillian Rogers, his secretary. But Rogers knew that he had a top-end camera and that Abraham liked to take movies. So Lillian kept at it and finally convinced Abraham to go back home and get the camera. Around 10 a.m. Zapruder got into his car and drove the seven miles back to his house in the suburbs of Dallas. This dressmaker, who liked to take pictures, was an avid amateur with his movie camera. Abraham arrived back home, located the camera, and started heading back to the office with his 8mm Director Series Bell & Howell movie camera in hand. It was equipped with a zoom telescopic lens. For those familiar with camera equipment, the zoom was a minimal range from 9 to 27 millimeters, but the f-stop rating on the lens was reasonably fast at 1.8. Overall, it was not an average camera. We're thankful for that today. It's hard to imagine now how a camera operated in those days. The sheer physicality of the moving parts, especially now that we're more than a full generation into digital pictures that are electronically saved into memory onto electronic storage medium. But back then, and for some of us who are old enough to remember what it was like to have cameras with physical film, this description will be interesting. This Bell & Howell camera essentially captured its images on a long piece of 16 millimeter wide color film, generally about 25 feet in length, with a set of sprocket holes that were used to physically advance the film past the shutter, but exposed, actually, only one side of the film at a time. When you were done with one side of the film, the film was then reversed and the other side of the film was then exposed. Once the roll was completely used up, the standard procedure was to take the exposed film out and provide the film to a photo lab, which then, using a precision cutting process to split the film right down the middle, thereby creating two pieces of standard 8mm film with sprockets on one side, which were then joined together to make one long continuous 8mm film. This was a physically efficient way to turn 25 feet of 16 millimeter film into 50 feet of eight millimeter film, effectively doubling the amount of film that could be shot with one roll. Zapruder grabbed the camera that morning, knowing that the film in the camera had already been used previously to record a bit of activity related to his grandchildren as he watched them play. He knew it wasn't a full roll of film, but he didn't know exactly how much was left. Later, that would play into the way he filmed the scene at Dealey Plaza. Some authors have indicated that it was a popular Kodachrome 2 safety film. I know that film well. I used to use it in my own still Nikon camera in the 70s and 80s. It produced pictures of a brilliant color and it was known as a daylight film, one that you could use outdoors. At first, Zapruder decided that he would simply film the parade from the window of his offices on the fourth floor of the Daltex building. He soon realized, as he pointed the camera out the window, that he wasn't going to get the best shot that way. As he later told the Warren Commission, around noon, he headed down to the plaza in order to find a good spot to start filming. As he walked out of the Daltex building, he made his way up onto that slightly elevated area on the north side of Dealey Plaza. Now we know it is the Grassy Knoll, but it wasn't known as that then. As a side note, Merriman Smith, around 25 minutes after the assassination took place, wired information as part of a UPI dispatch describing that area as the Grassy Knoll. That area has been referred to as the Grassy Knoll ever since that communication marked it in history as such. Zapruder got to that part of Dealey Plaza and began to search for just the right place to take pictures from. He made his way up onto the pergola and was situated high up on the knoll and in close proximity to the picket fence. But Zapruder was uncomfortable on the steps of the pergola, so he moved to another spot. But again, there was an obstruction of signs and perhaps other objects from this second vantage point. About that time, other employees from his office had begun to follow Abraham down to the plaza. By now, they saw him in the plaza and they began to move toward him. Zapruder knew he needed to test out the camera and make sure it was working properly before the motorcade got there. He tested the camera by filming a few frames of his office receptionist, Marilyn Sitzman, who was, by that time, walking up the grassy knoll to join Mr. Zapruder. Abraham took a little bit more film, capturing a couple more people on the nearby bench, including Beatrice Hester, one of his payroll clerks, and her husband. As he explained in the Warren Commission report about this sequence of events, he said, I was shooting some of the pictures to start my role from the beginning. I didn't want to have a blank. Still unsettled about exactly where to take the pictures from, he mentioned this to Marilyn Sitzman. Marilyn suggested that he stand on a small concrete structure that was slightly elevated and flat on the grassy knoll. Because it was flat and it was elevated, it was definitely a better place than trying to steady himself on the side of the hill. There was only one problem. You see, Zapruder suffered from vertigo and he was generally hesitant to step up on anything elevated or awkward, including this concrete structure but it was better than the pergola steps or trying to steady himself on the side of the hill. Marilyn knew it would be a good place to film from, and she coaxed him up onto the concrete platform. She said she would hold onto his coat while he was taking pictures in order to ensure that he was steady. Zapruder knew it would offer a great spot to take the movie from, and so he climbed up and got himself ready. Marilyn followed, and they both made their way up onto this four-foot-high pillar that elevated them above the crowd and gave them a great vantage point as the motorcade began to turn left off of Houston and then began its slow ride directly in front of them, down Elm Street. Sitzman was right there behind him, holding onto his coat and keeping the cameraman steady. That would ultimately prove to be an important point as the frightening sound of shots ringing out did not result in a camera being jarred. The picture was amazingly steady. The steady hand of Abraham Zapruder and his Bell & Howell 8mm Director Series movie camera captured these horrific moments in perfect cinematic detail. Eventually, for all the world to see. Thank you for listening to Episode 9 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.